thank you for coming this evening. I'm always grateful for an opportunity to teach. Um, it's uh, traditional at the beginning of a Buddhist teaching to um, there's two uh, there's two kind of preliminary steps that are uh, a part of uh, uh, this is a I'm, I'm trained primarily in the Gelugpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, we kind of uh, sometimes joke that we are the list Buddhists because we really like our academic presentations and our bulleted outlines and everything like that. Um, this is, that's how it was taught to me, and so that's how I pass it on. Five of these, um, three of these, uh -huh. seven of these. And you will see when we get into the material tonight, that's definitely, there's plenty of lists here. Um, so the way that I was taught, the appropriate way to begin a Buddhist teaching is uh, <coughs> refuge and uh, to take refuge and to set motivation. And um, refuge refers to uh, taking refuge in what are called the three jewels of Buddhism, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And um, there are, as you may know, there are many um, little poems and prayers that are, um, that are used to invoke this sense of refuge. The idea is that in, a, in, a, in samsara, in a life that is um, characterized by suffering, the only real shelter is a spiritual life and a commitment, an internal commitment to cultivating uh, altruistic motivation uh, for personal evolution. And so refuge means that we are turning our minds to things that can really protect us. And in, in Buddhist philosophy, this is the, the, the three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I like to think about what these things mean to me personally as my form of refuge, rather than reciting beautiful Indian or Tibetan poetry. I like to kind of connect with what how it, how it impacts my life, what makes a difference to me when I'm going for refuge. And so the Buddha, going for refuge to the Buddha, the Buddha means, uh, Buddha means a person who is awake. And that those of us in samsara, those of us who are uh, trapped, in the, uh, trapped in habitual reactivity, um, we are not awake. We are constantly responding to things, either things that are apparently coming at us, or our own emotional and mental impulses. A Buddha is a being who is awake to how reality is really working. And the English word that we use is enlightened. And uh, Buddha, the word Buddha comes from the root, uh, Sanskrit root bud, which means to illuminate, to remove darkness. And so the, the English word enlightenment really is a quite a good translation for the word Buddhahood or, or uh, Buddha. So what this means to me is that I'm taking shelter in the idea that there is a life outside of suffering, that there is a life beyond suffering, that there is a way to exist that is not just being buffeted about by uh, circumstances. And, uh, and a being who is awake to how reality is really working, who is motivated by pure altruism, and that such beings exist, and even though we can't see them necessarily, that they do exist in our world, and that they, uh, uh, that they are some way that we can connect with them. So I think of going for refuge to the Buddha as um, taking shelter, taking solace in the idea 
that my cosmic evolution, that all of our cosmic evolution will ultimately lead us to a, a world where there is no suffering for any being. And the Dharma is the, is the system, the, the way we structure our human lives in samsara how, to, to reach this goal. And so the Dharma are the teachings, the, the, the sequence, the system. What can I, the, the practical steps, what can I do to, to have an impact on this? And not just in a limited way, but in a real, ultimate, lasting way that's going to help the people in my world. And the Sangha is the community of practitioners, other people who uh, are, are supporting us in, in this practice and who have gone before us, who have put these teachings into practice and have produced true results that they then pass on as the lineage, that we, we have the teachings that we do because of the lineage, because others have put this into practice before us. And so we take solace knowing that others have produced results applying the teachings of the Dharma. And these, these are the three jewels. These are the three glimmering rays of hope in otherwise an abject world of suffering that is uh, habitual rebirth driven by impulses. Then setting our motivation, this is uh, cultivating a sense of bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is the, the recognition, the realization that I'm not ever going to have true happiness for myself if I look out on the world around me and see other beings still in suffering. That cultivating enlightenment in, internally and, and, and visualizing myself in, in a, a place where there are no mental afflictions can't really exist if I can look out and see that other sentient beings are still in suffering. And so I'm doing this, I'm studying these things and putting these things into practice, not only for myself, not only because I'm groping for the eject button to like get out of the like crashing and burning airplane of samsara, but realizing that I can't let the plane crash with all the passengers inside. I've got to figure out how to take everybody out of samsara. So we set the motivation that that this is uh, this is big picture. You know, it's not just uh, I'm not just trying to get a little happier, but that I'm doing this gosh darn it, for, for everybody else too. So this class is the, uh, the second of four um, called The Principal Teachings of Buddhism. This is based off of the Lam Rim genre of Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, Lam Rim means steps on the path. This is the, uh, a genre of Tibetan texts that are um, the assembly line conveyor belt to go from suffering schmuck trapped in samsara through the process of the developing uh, renunciation, bodhicitta, wisdom, and emerging on the other end as a perfected being. So the, the, the sequence in the Lam Rim is meant to be a roadmap of the spiritual life, which we can then use to figure out where am I on the roadmap. Um, it, it's nice to imagine that we're like very close to the, the very end of the roadmap. You know, once we're exposed to the big picture, we can say, oh, well, I'm almost done. But really the idea is to be able to take stock and it's gonna change, it's gonna be on different days, you're gonna feel differently. And so being able to figure out where am I, how is my personal reaction affecting my spiritual practice and what are the ways that I can apply the spiritual teachings to uh, help me and affect my my growth and my evolution from the spot that I'm at right now. 
Um, the, the last class um, was on the three principal paths. It was an outline of the three principal paths, um, which are renunciation, bodhicitta, and wisdom. Uh, the root text that we're studying was written by Jetsong Kappa. Uh, he lived from 1397 to 1419. I better make sure that this is correct. 1357 to 1419. He was the founder of the uh, Gelugpa school of Tibetan Buddhism. And he wrote the 14-verse the Lam Rim poem called The Three Principal Paths. And that's the root text that we are referencing in this uh, set of classes. Uh, in the reading, you'll also note that there is commentary provided by Pabonka Rinpoche. Uh, Pabonka Rinpoche is a contemporary Dharma master. He died in 1941, born in 1878. Um, so when you're looking at the reading, you will see that there is bold text. That's the, uh, the root text, the three principal paths. And then everything that's not bold is Pabonka Rinpoche's commentary. So I encourage you to review that. That is the scriptural reference for all of the content of this class. So um, the first class was on the three principal paths, the big picture overview. Uh, this class is focused on renunciation, the first of the three principal paths, and then the subsequent classes will be on bodhicitta and wisdom going into detail on the, each of those. So renunciation, uh, first of all, it sounds pretty scary. It means like I'm going to have to give up something that I don't, something good. I'm going to have to give up something good. And uh, that is actually not what renunciation means. Renunciation is quite the op opposite, actually. Renunciation means to renounce the life of suffering. So um, one of the things that we first, the, the reason for renunciation, the reason for studying renunciation the, the reason we should care about this topic is that uh, renunciation is developing the motivation to really take your spiritual life seriously. It's recognizing that it rec it's recognizing that we're in samsara. What are the what what are the real stakes here? Um, the the Buddhist worldview supposes, this is something that we don't really have in the same way in, in the West, but um, Buddhism presupposes an infinite cycle of rebirth where um, birth and death are not f uh, a fixed beginning and end, but are rather transitory states and that, there, that a, given per, a given mind stream has an infinite number of previous births and an and, and a infinite number of future births. And this is because the, the unexamined life, the, um, the life driven by karma, is uh, impulsive and reactive and responsive. It's driven by impulses. Um, we'll get into karma a little bit more, but this is, the, this is why it's important to practice a spiritual life, because what we're experiencing now is this particular individual's existence is uh, a very momentary thing in the span of cosmic evolution. And that even though I don't have memories of my previous lives, that in fact I am, the reason I am the way that I am today is because of countless amounts of 
decisions, karmic seeds that were planted over the period of countless rebirths, that this momentum of karma, this momentum of habit, you could say, of memory, of um, habitual acceptance of the way things are appearing to me, seeing things as self-existent, is what's driving a, an unconscious process of endless life, of endless rebirth. So recognizing that we're in this spin cycle, basically, without a real toehold or a real sense of if we're going to go up or down, um, that's the motivation to that's the motivation to turn one's mind towards spiritual practice. Uh, as I mentioned last time, um, one is not really on a spiritual path if one is concerned with positive results in this life. That a definition of a spiritual life is that one is more concerned about their future births they're more concerned about the future repercussions of the karmic seeds that they're planting now than they are concerned about the particular happiness of this vessel, of this temporary thing. So renunciation is the recognition that I'm in deep trouble here because I don't have a grip on the karmic process. And unless I get a grip on that process, I'm going to be, I'm basically, I have no control over my life or over any of my future lives. So renunciation means that real means that I need to get a grip on myself so that I can help other people get a grip on their selves so that I can be of better service to humanity that I can be of more use to others. So renunciation is about turning one's mind away from suffering, away from instinctual reactivity. It means to renounce suffering and creating the causes of suffering. In the outline, the next item is um, the relationship between renunciation and bodhicitta. I find this one very, I find this fascinating. Um, bodhicitta is the, is the recognition that we're all in it together, that my enlightenment can't really occur unless I'm dragging or, or urging or coaxing other beings to enlightenment along with me or ahead of me. But in order to have that drive in order to have the passion for the passion that's necessary to cultivate bodhicitta one has to first recognize that oneself is in trouble this is like um, on the airplane when the when they tell you about the oxygen masks you know that before you put the oxygen mask on the person next to you if they're unable to put it on themselves you have to put your own oxygen mask on Renunciation is recognizing you have to put your own oxygen mask on before you can help the other people around you put their oxygen masks on. Um, bodhicitta is commonly thought of as compassion, having compassion for the suffering of others. Renunciation is having that same intense compassion for your own suffering, realizing that because I can't, I'm not going to be able to figure this out doing the same kind of impulsive activity that I'm currently doing, that 
I have to have the compassion that I am recreating the causes of my own suffering through habitual instinctive reactivity. And that is the, um, that is the prerequisite for me being able to cultivate real compassion for others. I have to recognize that I need to get out of suffering before I really have the capability to do the same for others, to help others get out of suffering. So renunciation is recognizing that I'm trapped in samsara, and bodhicitta is recognizing that everybody else is trapped in samsara too. And we're all, we're, I can't get out without them. So this is the first of the three principal paths, which we uh, mentioned before in the previous class, uh, is also called the steps shared with practitioners of lesser scope. Um, these are practices that are meant to stop desire for the things of this life. Um, I've, heard in, I've heard it said that the, one of the root, one of, if not the root cause of suffering is um, grasping to the self-existence of my own self. And that drives me to crave pleasant results in this life. And that drives me to, to uh, do activities that plant negative karmic seeds, do things that hurt other people, in other words, in order to get my personal needs met. And so renunciation is realizing that this is what's creating these causes for future suffering. So the meditation to develop these um, in the early stage of the Lam Rim, uh, some of the earliest meditations are the meditations on leisure and fortune and impermanence and death. Leisure and fortune is, um, is the, the observation, the recognition, the reflection on how many advantages we have, how well things really are going for us in this kind of life. And if this is something that you need some help cultivating, um, you can just do some comparative shopping of human beings on Earth, 7.5 billion apparently from the last number that I heard, um, more than half of whom cannot read or write, um, half of whom don't have access to food or clean water or health care. So even within the human realm on this planet, there's a massive disparity between people who have time to come to a Dharma center on a Thursday evening, um, relaxed and alert and ready to, to think about these kinds of teachings, and people who never think about anything other than survival in their entire human life. People exactly the same as, as us, who have the same kind of mind, the same kind of body, the the same, the same planet, but they're living, they may as well be on another planet. They may as well be in the animal realm or the hungry ghost realm or something like that because they don't have any flexibility in their life to turn their mind away from immediate instinctive survival. So, and then that's not even considering the, the, what Buddhism considers the other five of the six realms. The hell beings, the hungry ghosts, animals, uh, we're in the human realm, demigods and gods. Uh, all of these realms are plagued by their various types of suffering. And, uh, and being a human being who has 
the wherewithal to care about the Dharma and the freedom and time to study the Dharma is extraordinarily rare. I mean, the, you know, the, the Buddhist metaphors for this are, it's like the chance of randomly stumbling into a life like this is in, in, inconceivably small, infinitesimally small. I mean, the, the metaphor that the Buddha gave is that you are a blind turtle living on the bottom of the ocean of a planet that's completely covered by ocean. And on the surface of the ocean is a single golden hoop, like a life, like a life preserver, like a life ring or something like that. And the turtle only surfaces once every hundred years. So we've got a blind turtle living at the bottom of a planetary ocean, surfaces only once every 100 years, and then the turtle happens to surface at the part of the ocean where the hoop is and puts his neck through the golden hoop. And according to Buddha, according to Gautama Buddha, those are the odds of getting a human birth with the leisure and fortune to practice the Dharma. So. Uh, you know, extraordinarily small odds. Way better deal than winning the lottery, you know? Way better than buying a Powerball ticket or whatever the California lotto is. You know, the odds of, of having a life like this are way smaller than, than striking it rich on the lotto. And subsequently, impermanence and death. We've got a golden ticket, and it's not going to last. It's, we've got a, a limited amount of time here. Um, the the um, meditation that, that my teacher passed to me, which I have found very valuable, is the morning lull, which is when you wake up in the morning and before you get out of bed, um, do, do this meditation. Think first about how well things are going for you. Spend some time cultivating some gratitude and some warmth about the um, benefits of our life. I mean, if only that we have shelter and clean running water and access to food and people aren't bombing us or persecuting our religion, uh, that's reason enough to be grateful that our life is extraordinary. And then move on to impermanence, and it won't last long. Uh, there's no such thing as a fixed, there's no such thing as an average lifespan. Um, the uh, death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. And what is going to matter at the time of death? And so we're doing this while we're lolling around in bed, waking up saying, gosh, you know, it's pretty nice. I've got a nice house. I've got cozy covers. I've got clean water, clean food. And, uh, and it's not going to last long. So what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my time? What's going to matter? What's going to matter at the moment of death? Which is, a, which it, in which the world is dissolving before me, what is going to matter? And um, that's the amount of, uh, that's the, uh, uh, that's, what's going to matter is our spiritual practice, the ability, the, the abilities that we've developed, the deep insights we've gained, the karmic evolution that we've managed to eke out is the really the only thing that's going to go with us. So 
the uh, problems that we face here um, are clearly elucidated here in the eight worldly thoughts. This is one of our lists. We have four sets of pairs. The eight worldly thoughts. This is um, often, I've heard this usually called the uh, eight worldly dharmas. Um, but I personally get kind of confused about the difference between a worldly dharma and a Buddhist dharma. Like, isn't dharma supposed to be good stuff? And then the worldly dharmas are not good. And so I like eight worldly thoughts because then we can just like leave dharma for good stuff. Uh, uh, so the, the eight worldly thoughts are beneficial because this is our sort of like warning. This is what you're going to encounter today. And so if you're prepared for it, don't overreact. You won't overreact, you know? Um, basically, it's a description for the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs. The eight worldly thoughts are getting something that you want and not getting something that you want. Feeling good and not feeling good. Being well-known and being obscure. Nobody knows you, unpopular. People saying nice things to you and people saying bad things to you. Now the eight worldly dharmas, these are, these are eight problems that we face. But to us, half of them seem good, right? But like it's nice when people say nice things to you and not nice, and so when, when people say not nice things to you. But the cautionary tale here is don't get so elated when something good happens and don't get so crushed when something bad happens. When something good happens, be like, oh, this is nice, it's pleasant, you know? But not like get invested in it and attached to it. And then when something negative happens, be like, oh, this is not pleasant, but also not, don't get overly invested, don't get overly attached to that. You can't really do the one without the other. Get so attached to positive things because then when something negative happens, it's like a big tragedy, a big crisis. So the eight worldly thoughts are all the ways that we keep planting negative karma. I want people to like me. And so I'm like continually grasping to this like small ego-centric little self, which doesn't even really exist in the long run. But I'm very attached to this thing. And I'm very attached to people. I'm very attached to people liking it. And I'm very attached to people not, not liking it. And so in that, I'm continually, moment, by, moment to moment, throughout the day, throughout my life, I'm planting karma to continue to think I'm more important than other people. And like what happens to me is really important. And that's antithetical to renunciation. It's antithetical to bodhicitta. It's antithetical to the idea that we're all in it together and that no one's getting out of samsara unless we all get out of samsara. As long as I am thinking that this guy is important, I'm a big shot Buddhist or whatever, then I am fundamentally not practicing. I'm, pl I'm recreating the causes to get stuck in samsara. So this is when it becomes useful to understand the properties of karma. Karma uh, means, karma means causality but it means, which we already know about. We already believe in causality. We already accept causality. When people encounter karma, and it's like this exotic, far-out Asian thing, you know. Um, but karma, you know, simply means causality. And we already recognize causality, right? Like, we go to school to get the degree because it'll get us the better job, because it will get us more money, because that's how we pay the rent to have the house so that I can have a comfortable place to sleep, right? That causality totally works. It's accurate. But karma is supposing that there are more layers to causality than just the material layer. That, in fact, our intentions and that our thoughts and that our motivations 
the motivations behind the actions also influence how reality works. So, the, therefore, um, it's not just what we say, but it's also, or, and what we do, but it's also how we think about what we say and how we think about what we do. And in fact, you could say maybe that the, the thoughts and the motivations behind the actions are really the most important part. Because, of course, you can always smile and say something to somebody that the words are nice words, but if it's motivated by trying to undercut them, you know, like um, there's a word for that where you have like a, an insult coated in honey or something like that, where you, you know, say something sweet, but it's actually intended to be cruel. And so that's like an example of how the actions can be one way, but if the motivation is something else, then you're still planting the, the karma of the motivation, not the karma of the action. You can be generous but with a motivation of selfishness, and then it's not truly gener generosity, and so it's still planting those karm the planting the karmas of selfish planting the karmic seeds of selfishness. We use the metaphor of gardening because it seems to work really well for for karma, and um, in, in fact we can go into it a little bit. These are the four principles of karma. The first of the four is karma is certain. Actions are certain to produce similar results. So, um, acts of generosity result in the karma of uh, having enough. Acts of selfishness result in the karma of not having enough, and so on. And there are, there are extensive karmic correlations and, and uh, texts that go into this quite a lot about, like, if you're experiencing this kind of problem in your life, well, that was caused by this kind of karma, so you need to change it by planning this kind of karma so that you can antidote the negative experience that you're having now. But it's sufficient to say that um, actions that are meant to help other people, that are motivated by kindness, that are motivated by compassion, that are motivated by altruism, plant positive karmic seeds that are going to result in pleasant, uh, that are going to lead to pleasant results. And uh, actions and thoughts um, motivated by selfishness and undercutting other people and competition are going to lead to results of uh, negative experiences coming back at us. So uh, this is all kind of, this is kind of a materialistic view of karma, but it's important for wrapping our heads around the concept so that we can start working with these ideas. Karma is, uh, even in the Buddhist worldview, karma is like one of the most complex topics, one of the most complex concepts, and so uh, it's kind of a given that samsaric beings can't understand karma because we're too mired in our experience to be able to get the big picture gestalt, um, but we can start working with it uh, in order to gradually start ratcheting ourselves in the direction of our of, uh, positive, uh, positive upward spiral of uh, cosmic evolution. So if we want positive things in our life, if we want to have positive experiences in our life, then we must make sure that we are helping other people have positive experiences in their lives. And uh, uh, on the contrary, that if we want to not have negative experiences in our life, then we need to try to protect other people from negative experiences. Actions produce... Uh, Similar results, positive result, positive actions lead to positive results, negative actions lead to negative results. 
the consequences are greater than the actions, or karma grows. So uh, a small action will increase in magnitude um, before the result comes. So be careful, because uh, a small act of generosity can, turn, can produce the karmic results of a windfall, but a small act of maliciousness or hatred can lead to massive negative results in the future. They say that one act of karma, I think this is Shanti Deva said this, that one act of anger, one moment of anger can destroy a thousand years collection of good karma. Because that little intense moment of negativity towards another person, uh, just like, it just like sucks all of that positivity out of your bank account, you know, out of your karmic bank account, so to say. You don't really have a karmic bank account, but <laughs> metaphor, metaphorically. One cannot meet a consequence if, she, if he or she has not committed an action. The results will not come if the causes have not been put into place. And conversely, once an action is committed, the consequence cannot be lost. Once a cause has been put into place, the results must come. So these are the four laws of karma or causality in the universe. And we start to get a sense of how, um, how our actions are, are influencing our um, spiritual evolution, our um, process towards enlightenment. So um, again, we're in the renunciation class, and that means that we need, to, the purpose of this is to start to develop a sense of how things are not working out in samsara, and to get our stoke up to practice a spiritual life and develop the alternative. And so we come to point seven on the outline, the six sufferings of a human life. Um, these are the particular sufferings of the human realm, the realm that we are in. These are the problem that life has no certainty, that we never know what's going to happen next. We don't really have any control over what experiences are coming down the pipeline, and no matter how much we prepare or how carefully we arrange our nice, neat, flaming little stuff, that eventually that we're just not at all actually aware of what's coming. It's totally uncertain what's going to happen in the next hour, the next year, the next decade. The problem that we always want more than we have. I think no commentary is necessary on that one. The problem that we keep shucking off bodies over and over again. The problem that we keep going into a new life over and over again. This, again, is uh, based on the principle of rebirth um, and that, uh, that the process of dying, of losing our life, is an inherently traumatic experience and that the process of taking on a new body, going through the process of, of being conceived, being born, and maturation is also intrinsically an uh, unpleasant experience. The problem that we go up and down in our fortunes in life over and over again. This is the eight worldly thoughts, the vicissitudes of life. And the problem that ultimately no one will come along with us, that we are alone. That no matter how many loved ones we have when, when it's time to go, that they can't come with us. They can't, they can't stay with us. They can't extend our life by even a moment, even if they 
even if everybody in the world wants us to live another five minutes, there's nothing that can be done. But in case um, the six sufferings of a human life is too many to memorize, we have a backup of three sufferings. We have a six sufferings and a three sufferings list because <laughs> we're the list Buddhists. Um, the three sufferings, the suffering of suffering. This is when you're in the disaster. This is when the, you lose the job, the loved one dies, you're in an accident, you lose your health. When the shit hits the fan. The suffering of change is the second. Uh, the suffering of change is that we lose the things that we have and we encounter things we don't want. That we can't keep the things that we like. Um, and this can look not just like they break, it's not like the new iPhone breaks or something like that, but you just get sick of stuff, you know? Like that new thing that seems so great, that new relationship, that new job, the new whatever seems so wonderful. Um, but like you get sick of it. We get, you know, it's like we get bored of it, get sick of it. And so that's, a, that's one of the main ways that we can lose something that we love. <coughs> we just kind of uh, get bored of it, you know? Um, and then the third is intrinsic suffering. This is what the six sufferings of a human life uh, is referring to. Intrinsic suffering is uh, the fact that we can't, um, that, we're not in, that we're not in control and that, uh, there are, that we can't avoid suffering, that we can't, there's no uh, way to evade it. There's no like escape. There's no apparent escape in samsara. Um, the tendency of suffering to create more suffering is intrinsic suffering. So because I suffer, I commit actions that plant negative karmic seeds, which ensure future suffering is going to come, and motivated by ignorance, uh, driving myself through the, the cycle of samsara without apparent control or ability to influence the situation. How to know when you have true renunciation. I like to refer to the poem for this one because uh, he, he um, puts it so succinctly. This is uh, the fifth verse. When you've meditated thus, which means when you have contemplated deeply the concepts that we've been talking about in this class, and feel not even a moment's wish for the good things of cyclic life, the apparently good things of cyclic life, and when you begin to think both night and day of achieving freedom, of finding an alternative to suffering for yourself and for everybody, then you found renunciation. And that renunciation is the goal of the first of the three principal paths, developing a deep sense that trying to manipulate samsara to work out well is only going to produce more suffering, is only planting the, the seeds for more suffering. And that the, the goal of this stage, of the first of the three principal paths, is to, is to get that deeply ingrained and to become focused on, on finding an alternative and practicing an alternative. 
So there is a, a meditation assignment, which is something that if you're interested in, uh, I encourage you to practice uh, on your own. If you, uh, of course, if you have a meditation practice, then by all means continue that. And this is a, a great contemplation. In the handout, it says 15 minutes per day on why even the nice things of this life are in the nature of suffering and how important it is to use the opportunity this kind of life affords to work for spiritual goals. Um, I recommend doing the morning lull. When you wake up in the morning, cultivate some sense of gratitude for the leisure and fortune that we have, and then realize that that's a, a limited time offer, and what's really going to matter when the time runs out, and what are you going to do about it today to put those things into practice. <laughs>